If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is where we find ourselves today. It's page 173 in the Bibles in the, in the rows, page 173. Uh, again, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of these. It's in the, the chair in front of you um, as a gift from us. We're going to read the first four verses of Deuteronomy 32 this morning. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would direct us and guide us, open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, that we may hear, that we may see you as you are, Lord, direct me, fill me with your Spirit, that I would proclaim your Word with truth and with clarity. Lord, may I step out of the way so that you can be seen and heard in all your glory. Lord, we pray this for that glory of yours and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. As a kid, one of my favorite things to do when I got home from school was to watch cartoons. And two of my favorites were G.I. Joe and the Super Friends. Um, when I remember both of those, uh, I remember they fought for what was good. Uh, you know, they fought for truth and justice. And, and in particular, Super Friends, I remember Superman and Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and, of course, the Wonder Twins and their pet monkey, Gleek. If you don't remember that, uh, you can go back on YouTube and watch the old Super Friends and see Gleek. They formed what was known as the Justice League. And you can see right there, their headquarters was called the Hall of Justice. And which you can see in our next slide, that this looks strikingly familiar to Union Terminal, now the Cincinnati Museum Center, because it was actually modeled after Union Terminal at the time. That's where they got the design of the Justice League. Yet even with all the different superpowers that the Super Friends had, and even with it being complete and utter fiction, Justice was never perfect. Never perfect. It, it couldn't be because they were all flawed heroes in and of themselves. But thankfully, that's not the case with God. As we continue on in our series, Knowing God, we move to look at the, at the justice of God, at, at true justice. Our shorter catechism question that we've been going through is question number four, what is God? And again, you can recite it with me. God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so you can see we're nearing the end, but today we are on justice. Now, as we think about justice, though, it is, it is well and good to understand that God is a God of justice, but there is often a lack of clarity in our world as to what actually constitutes justice. 
People can, can um, rally in the streets and, and shout, no justice, no peace. But you can have people alongside the street that think that the justice that they're screaming for isn't justice. You can also have people, and some celebrated this past week, for reproductive justice, which biblically I can say is not justice. But there's always these, these um, differences um, with, with what justice is. And so that's why we need a standard of justice, because true justice, by definition, cannot be arbitrary. It cannot be arbitrary. R.C. Sproul wrote, when justice is spoken of in biblical categories, it is never an abstract concept that exists above and beyond God, and to which God himself is bound to conform. Rather, in the scriptures, the concept of justice is linked with the idea of righteousness, and it is based on the internal character of God. The fact that God is just means that he always, always acts according to righteousness. So that's what we explore this morning. True justice, the the justice of God. And so we will do so, and and, and what we're going to do just pretty simply is look at what it means that God is just, and then we will answer a very important question. And that question is this, how can God be just and yet justify or uh, acquit and declare, the, the, uh, um, declare righteous those who are guilty? How can God be just and yet declare righteous those who are actually guilty? My hope is that by the end of this, you're going to greatly appreciate who God is. Appreciate that God is infinitely just and that you will see the glory of the cross of Christ in all of it. And as we begin, we have to remember who God is, that he is the sovereign creator, that he has every right to do with us his creation. We are his creation. We are creatures. He has every right to do with us according to his pleasure, to judge us, to raise us up or bow us down. We are his and he can order the world however he desires. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, after he had been humbled by God, He admitted as such to this fact of who God is and blessed him and praised him in Daniel 4. He says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled. He saw that God had the right to do with his creation and his creatures, whatever he desired. Now, thankfully, we've already seen what the character of our sovereign God is, that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness. And we're going to see more with justice today and goodness and truth and and on and on. So this ought not to be a scary concept that God can do what he wishes with his creation because of who he is. It's actually a comforting one. The one in control is unspeakably great. So then when we speak of God being just, what do we mean by that? What do we mean? Well, viewed absolutely, it is the all-perfect righteousness of God's being considered in himself. Viewed relatively, it is his infinitely righteous nature exercised as the moral governor of his intelligent creatures in the imposition of righteous laws 
and in their righteous execution. So he's, he's just in and of himself, but he's also just in how he relates to his creation, to his creatures. Look again at Deuteronomy 32.4. Just very briefly see this, but the rock, his way is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Now the language there of God as rock, that, that, that should generate for us a, a, an understanding of steadfastness, that he's steady, that he's always there, that he's a refuge. His character as well, it undergirds all that he is and does, and his work then will never not be perfect, okay? His work will always be perfect. All that he does is just and right. There is no sin, no evil, no iniquity. He is holy, holy, holy. Nothing that God does will ever violate his character or his standards. All his ways are perfect. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. All his ways are righteous. All his ways are just. God cannot be anything but just and righteous. He could be no more unjust than he could be unholy or impotent or um, foolish. He cannot be unjust. His justice flows from who he is by nature. If you think about a human judge or, or simply any human being, we can act justly um, for various reasons. One reason we could act justly is we're forced into it. That could also be a reason we act unjustly at the same time. Our arm can be twisted. We can be bribed. But that cannot happen with God. He cannot be forced to do anything. No one holds anything over our God. So knowing who God is, this God has given us laws. And he has given us perfect laws. They're, they're not above him. He does not operate based on his laws. His, operate, his laws are a reflection of who he is. There's no standard above God, nothing outside to which he must conform. The criteria God uses is his own holiness and truth. So because of this, every person, as Robert Raymond said, need have no fear. So listen to that. So knowing that God is a judge, though, we need have no fear that he will be judged according to an arbitrary fiat. He may rest assured that God's justice is grounded in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, his commitment to truth, and the demands which his own ethical holiness imposes upon him, and thus is and will be unassailably, unassailably right and just. His judgments will in some be according to the criteria of his own holy and just nature. That should take away our fear of how God operates. God gives us laws to show us what it is to be in conformity with his nature, with his justice. Isaiah 32 tells us he's a lawgiver. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. And we find his laws and standards throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we, we see them, you know, you see them laid out in, at length in many places in the Old Testament, but you see them throughout Scripture. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, after kind of the laying out of the law and laying out of the blessings and the curses, it says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Following God's law is life and good. Go, you know, walking in, in contrast to it 
is death and evil. Our call is to obedience to God's laws. That is the good way. Blatantly disregarding his laws will bring about pain and death and evil. So what that points us to as well then is how God executes justice. How does he do it? How, how does he distribute justice to his creation? In what ways does he do this? And there are typically two ways that are, are spoken of as, as God's um, general practice of distributing his laws. One is remunerative, which is a word that we don't talk about much, and then retributive. So we'll, we'll define those. So remunerative. Some people will talk about what's your remuneration, you know, what are you getting paid for what you did? So remunerative is, is God being just in rewarding the righteous. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What he's saying here is that God does not forget or overlook what you have done in his name. He does not overlook that. He does not forget it. He does reward people's obedience and faithfulness. Psalm 18, 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. Thomas Boston, just kind of in, in thinking about how this works, because you don't always see that reward externally, right? We don't always see that or, or experience that reward externally. And Thomas Boston wrote this. He said, Sometimes providence does notably interpose and load obedience with blessings here in the world to the conviction of all beholders so that men are constrained to say, verily, there is a reward for the righteous. But however he do so as to outward things, yet he rewards his people with inward blessings. There are fresh supplies and influences of grace, near and intimate communion with him, sweet manifestations of his favor and love, intimations of peace and pardon and joy and peace in believing. So if you look at Psalm 19, David actually spoke about that there's great reward in keeping the commands of God. Great reward. Jesus told his disciples what? He said, if you keep my commandments, you will what? You will abide in my love. Not only will you abide in my love, but your joy will be made full. There is, there is blessing in obedience to God's commands and God's ways. But then there's also what is known as retributive justice. You could call it afflictive if you want. But this is the idea that God is just to inflict punishment on sinners. He's just to do that. Again, always according to his righteous law, never arbitrary in judgment. So how do we see this play out? Well, there are times when God afflicts his people to correct them, to censure them for their sins. This is, this is not a mean-spirited thing. And, and for believers, we ought to actually see this kind of um, justice as a, a loving disciplining of his children. He rebukes those he loves to keep them from further strain. It's kind of a correction. It's, you know, kind of knocking you back into line in a, in a sense. You know, it's, it's a correction. to let, Let's not keep strain off, but let's, let me give you a correction here. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalmist, in that psalm that is so much a, a hymn of, of praise to God and his commandments, he admits in it, before I was afflicted, I went astray. 
but now I keep your word. That affliction was a good for him. It was blessing for him. Yet for the wicked, when God punishes, it it does seem to have a different feel to it. You see, God cannot let sin go unpunished. We talked about His holiness. And so, He can't just wink at sin. He can't let it go. He, he, he does not acquit the wicked. A holy God cannot wink at sin, at rebellion, at wickedness. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 8, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has, he has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. And one, I, I know we read through that often, maybe, but just to know that He says He judges the world with righteousness and judges the peoples with uprightness. It doesn't say with whimsy, with fancy, with whatever he's thinking that day. It's not, again, it is not an arbitrary justice. Romans 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul wrote this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be wrath for those who continue in wickedness. Now, So that's remunerative and retributive. But I I think with that too, even just kind of seeing that framework, there are some questions that come about when we think about God's justice. Some questions, maybe even some objections we have like, hey, wait a second, what about this? And so I want to try and address some of the whatabouts. And the first one is, as I think maybe one that you have thought about yourself, it's maybe one of the most common And from the perspective of a believer, it goes like this. If God is perfectly just, then why do the wicked prosper? If God is perfectly just, why does it seem like the wicked are prospering in this life? The psalmist who wrote Psalm 73 had those questions. Take some time and read Psalm 73, and you'll see this despair at the beginning, and then there's a turn. It's a very dramatic turn. Jeremiah asked the same question. Jeremiah 12, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Now, I can't give a full-fledged answer in this short time frame, but like I said, read Psalm 73. But in summary, in many ways, it's this. The wicked will not prosper forever. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. An eternal perspective changed how he saw everything here. Their end is established, and it's not good. So one of the things is, it's, it's, when, when we see that and when we have that thought, we're being asked to lift our eyes to see God and in an eternal perspective. And it will change how we view that. They will not finally prosper. Further, sometimes in God's sovereign will, the wicked are used as instruments to bring about God's work. Cyrus is one of the biggest examples that's, that's listed. He, he was a wicked king, but yet did so much Uh, for the benefit of the people of God. 
Yet even though the, the psalmist and Jeremiah and others have had that question, the truth is this. Yes, we may see the wicked prosper a lot, but that is not always the case. The wicked do not always prosper. Look at Psalm, you can look at Psalm 9, um, and, and you see some are clearly punished now in order that justice may be seen. And God in his sovereign wisdom determines that. And we have to trust him. In his infinite wisdom, he chooses those times where he overlooks and he allows the wicked to prosper for a time or he punishes the wicked more immediately. Now, there is another question, and that's this. So, sometimes we see the wicked prospering, and, but then also, why in the world do we see God's people, the, the good people, suffering? And I always remember R.C. Sproul's answer to this in some ways. He's, he basically said this, well, a good person has only suffered once and he volunteered because none of us are actually good. Thomas Boston wrote this. He says, the ways of God's judgments, though they are sometimes secret, yet they are never unjust. God does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. There are culpable causes in them from which their afflictions spring. They have their spots and blemishes as well as others. Though they may be free from gross and atrocious crimes, yet they are guilty of much pride and passion, censoriousness, worldliness, etc. And the sins of God's people are more provoking in His sight than the sins of other men. We have to see that, that we are sinful too. We suffer because we are fallen and we live in a fallen world. But as I stated earlier, the, the, the afflictions and sufferings that we endure are there for discipline, for our good. They produce, suffer, or they produce endurance and, and character and hope. You could look at Romans 5 or Hebrews 12. So we can rest assured that God is always just in how He operates. His ways are never, never out of accord with His wisdom and holiness. And so sometimes what we need in all of this is simply an adjustment as to our understanding. We need to try and get that, that perspective from God rather than ours. We need to see from different eyes of what is actually just. And one thing that I found helpful as I was reading and studying for this is R.C. Sproul just gave, gave a framework. And he said there's two uni universal ca categories, justice and non-justice. Okay, notice that it says justice and non-justice. Everything outside the circle of justice is in the category of non-justice, but there are different kinds of non-justice. The mercy of God is outside the circle of justice and is a kind of non-justice. Now, also in this category is injustice. Injustice is evil. An act of injustice violates the principles of righteousness. If God were to do something unfair, he would be acting unjustly. Abraham knew the impossibility of that when he said to God, shall not the judge of all earth do what is just? Because God is a just judge, all his judgments are according to righteousness so that he never acts in an unjust way. He never commits an injustice. Now that last phrase, that leads us, I think, to the, the bigger objection that I mentioned at the beginning. And that's where we're going to focus most of the rest of our time is how can God be remain just, not be unjust or unjust, and yet acquit sinners? How can God pardon the guilty? So I would ask you to turn with me to Romans 3. 
Romans 3, New Testament, um, probably about three quarters of the way through, maybe a little bit further in your Bible. Romans 3. And we're going to look at one of the most, I think, theologically packed paragraphs in Scripture and unfortunately go through it fairly quickly. Um, but, but I want to hit the, the main points of this. So we're going to start in, in verse 21. So Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul writes this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it is in this paragraph that Paul works through the dilemma between our sin and guilt and God's perfect and absolute righteousness and justice and the fact that he saves some. Now up to this point in Romans, Paul has made very clear that every person, without exception, is guilty. So 1 through 320 very clearly says everybody's guilty. Everybody is a sinner. Gentile, Jew, you are all sinners. There is no one righteous. There is not one. All in and of themselves are under the condemnation of sin. He establishes that very clearly. And then our text begins with a beautiful word. But, but, it is amazing how significant a conjunction can be. Here's contrast. Something different is about to be laid out. And it is that the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law, but not in contradiction to the law, just apart from the law. The law and the prophets have actually, so the whole Old Testament has pointed to this, this righteousness of God that is coming apart from the law. Now, what is it? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here Paul repeats what he has already stated in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness from God is for those who believe, those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this is what we would call in, in theological terms justification. Justification, and, and that, uh, I think our shorter catechism definition of justification is phenomenal. This is, you've already, you've pretty much got question four down, maybe add question 33 to it, okay? So question 33 is, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us 
and received by faith alone. That is an extremely packed little sentence. Justification is, is a, it's a legal term, and it's the opposite of condemnation. Okay? Both would be something that a, that a judge would pronounce, that you're either justified or condemned, upon a, so they would pronounce that upon a person. Now, Paul points out that this justification must be and is only by faith. Now, why? Why must this justification only be by faith? Well, quite sim- simply, because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. None of us can do anything to earn our salvation. Our works do not do that. No one is just. No one is righteous. Our justification is by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The salvation of sinners comes not from our works, but it comes from actually being united to the one who lived the perfect life and paid the debt for sin of those who have faith in him. Okay, so we're united to him. But the question maybe is still looming. How is that still not an injustice? How can God still be just and do this? What says God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood? Propitiation, it's a big word that means to to turn away the the, the wrath, um, to appease the wrath. Jesus' willing sacrifice That's a key. He's a willing sacrifice as an atonement, as a covering for our sin, as an appeasing of the wrath of God is what brings us salvation. Sin has never been shrugged off by God. God did not just go, okay, I'll take you guys and not you. Okay, something had to be done with that sin. The debt was paid in full in Christ Jesus. So for those who place their faith in Christ Jesus, who are united to him by faith, the debt has already been paid. And it was this that showed forth, that demonstrated God's absolute righteousness, his perfect justice. God maintained his justice in that our sin was still punished. The wrath of God was still poured out for our sin, but it was poured out on our substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus. And therefore, he gave us salvation. We receive mercy. It's not an injustice. We receive mercy and grace. And so the cross showed for all time and does show for all time God's absolutely, uh, absolute righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. The only way to be justified is through faith in Christ. Now, it is in the cross, then, that we see God's absolute hatred of sin, the fullest manifestation of his wrath, but it is also in that very same cross that we see the fullest expression of his love, of his mercy, and his grace. The charge of God being unjust and pardoning the guilty, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the cross. There's John Stott who wrote, Without the cross, the justification of the unjust would be unjustified, immoral, and therefore impossible. The only reason God justifies the wicked, Romans 4, 5, is that Christ died for the wicked, Romans 5, 6, because he shed his blood in a sacrificial death for us sinners. God is able to justify the unjust. 
And you know what? Further, I think the cross also reinforces the essential nature of God's justice. Because if God's justice were not essential, if it were not something that absolutely had to happen, there would be no way for us to give an actual viable account for the death and sufferings of Jesus that would make it at all tolerable. If God's justice were not essential, if his holiness were not essential, you could actually maybe come up with the charge that this was, um, that this was abuse. But instead, God's infinite holiness and justice shine forth at the cross, and we see it as the most loving, self-sacrificial, and glorious event in all of history. So what do we do with all of this? Let me just give a, a few things, a few things to think about. There's many others you could, you could have, but just a few here. Knowing that God is infinitely just as a believer, so keeping that in mind, when you are corrected, when you are disciplined, own it. God's not arbitrarily doing it. Own it. Own the sin. Confess and repent. God is not doing anything to you unjustly. Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah is praying and he's thinking about everything that has happened to um, God's people and the exile and uh, Jerusalem being you know, raised and all kinds of things. And he says, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's honesty. That's humility. That's, that's Nehemiah saying, God, you were completely just because we were horrid. Own it. Grow through it. Then also as a believer, as one in union with Christ, we are called to imitate God in loving justice in loving justice and righteousness and pursuing it. Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Okay? You hear that. You hear those first two lines and your ears should be perked. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The first thing there is not to have a personal quiet time. That might be really good. But he says, I, I want you to love justice, to do justice, to act rightly, because that is how he acts. He can never not do what is just. We're to love kindness and walk humbly with our God. Another thought, though. Knowing that God is infinitely just, remember this when you have some of these other questions. There will be a day of judgment. There will. Acts 17.31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Rest assured that the guilty will not go unpunished. We actually confess this today. The Nicene Creed, we could have confessed it in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe that he will come to judge the living and the dead. God is actually described as judge a great deal of times throughout Scripture. 
But finally, I want you to listen to this and listen very closely. And this might sound weird, but be comforted by God's justice. Be comforted by it, particularly to the repentant believer. We, we, I've used this many times for our assurance of pardon. 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and arbitrary to forgive us our sins and to cl- No. What, what does it say? I, I think we run past that all the time. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. You would think maybe he'd say he's faithful and merciful. He's faithful and compassionate. He's faithful and gracious. But it actually says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It would be unjust if God punished you for your sin, if you're in Christ. He can't. There is no wrath for a believer. You may well be disciplined. You may well be corrected. But you, as a believer in Christ, united to him, will never in your life, in all of eternity, experience the wrath of God. Is that not a comfort? You will never, ever know that horrific wrath of God because it has already been poured out on Christ. Christ on the cross said, it is finished. And so that is a great comfort that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because Jesus has already paid it all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are just, that you are our righteous judge, our good King and Lord, and that you can never act outside of justice. Never act outside of your holiness, your goodness, your truth. And so, Lord, may we trust that when we have questions, when we wonder what is going on. And may we be comforted that you are always just and good to your people. Work that in us. Work that truth into our spirits more and more. Lord, for your glory, that we would, we would see you as you are and for our good and joy in all of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.